Welcome to Project Update, a weekly podcast about the projects we're working on and prefixing our operators. I'm Dave Ramsey. And I'm Joe Simpson. How's it going this week, Joe? Oh, pretty good. How's it going with you? Uh, not bad. Not good. bad at all. So we don't have any follow-up this week, so I'm going to dive right in to my updates. This week was kind of an interesting week where I spent far more time in WordPress than I did in Xcode. So one of my kind of long-standing database customers needed a website and they were getting some questionable proposals back. And <laughs> Was one of them from you? No. Okay. Um, actually, this this is the second time this has happened this year where one of my existing customers was getting pretty crazy quotes for pretty basic website functionality. And uh, I did the first one back in July and then sent a couple emails around saying, hey, if anybody is interested, I can do this stuff as well. So another customer took me up on that and I've been doing their site over the last couple of weeks. And at this point, it's, I'd say, 90% done. Uh, we're just working on content now and kind of going back and forth with that. And, you know, all the structures there, all the pages are there. I'm just kind of adding some bells and whistles to it. But uh, it's the kind of work that is, it's very mouse-driven. WordPress, the back end, when I'm not just writing PHP for a page template, using the tools themselves are very mouse-heavy. And last, or I guess not last week, but the week before last week, by the time I got to Friday, my right hand was just on fire. Like basically 18 hours of WordPress work in three days had really screwed up my hand pretty badly. And I spent most of the weekend just trying not to do anything. So this week came around and I you know, started the week off with the podcast and doing some work on retrospective, which I'll touch on soon. And the next day I started back on the WordPress stuff for another round of changes. And about three hours into it, I'm like, this is totally untenable. <laughs> I can't do this type of stuff here. So I remembered that Apple had added desktop class browsing support to Safari on iOS 13. So just on a whim, I thought I'd give that a shot to see how well I could get that working with the WordPress backend. And surprisingly well, it's certainly not perfect, but I was able to use just about everything that I needed to do just working on the iPad Pro and kind of getting rid of the pointing device entirely and just tapping when I needed to tap, which was way faster. It's kind of weird. Like I wouldn't want to work like this all the time mm -hmm. because you do kind of end up hunching over the iPad and it's not the best posture for that type of stuff. But I was able to get a ton of work done in a couple of days. And, you know, I stayed in the browser where possible and was kind of switching tabs as I was uh, refreshing stuff. And it went pretty fast. Um, the I didn't try to make this like I'm going to only work on the iPad thing. Like there was lots of stuff that it was just way faster to do on the Mac. Like there was a couple of times I had to FTP a bunch of files up. And I'm like, I'm not even going to bother installing an FTP app on the iPad. Like, <laughs> that's just not a good use of my time. So it's just kind of bouncing back and forth. And it was pretty productive period. But I spent most of the time just kind of sitting at my desk or standing at my desk in front of the iMac, but doing most of the work on the iPad. 
and Apple added a feature to macOS 13 called Sidecar, which lets you use the iPad as kind of a second display for, if you can use it as a second display or you can use it as like a custom display for a specific application window and be able to do some, some custom stuff with it. And that's kind of useful. I guess that's more useful if you're traveling with an iPad and a laptop. But for me, I want the opposite. I want to be able to set up several things to look at from the iPad and be able to cast those to a Mac or an Apple TV. And you can get the same <laughs> thing with an external display. I just don't have one handy. I guess I could plug an HDMI cable into the iPad from the TV, but that would be pretty awkward. But yeah, it's an interesting kind of maybe a taste of things to come if SwiftUI ever gets some kind of interface builder on iPad, which is something a lot of people are kind of speculating. That, would be, that may be the first time we get any kind of development tools on iPad are some kind of stripped down application, like not Xcode for iPad, but more of like building SwiftUI and combine and whatever other frameworks make it into that type of ecosystem. And uh, again, like it's the type of thing, like I don't know if I'd ever want to just work on the iPad all the time. I think I, at various times I've had different feelings about that, but there are so many things that are just way faster on the Mac and I just need to be careful about the type of work I'm doing because I just spent all weekend, well, not all weekend, but I spent you know Friday and all of yesterday and today working on the Mac and using a mouse from time to time, but I'm doing almost all the work in Xcode and I'm just staying on the keyboard the whole time. So it's not nearly as bad as, I don't have any way to like count. Maybe I should set up some kind of machine learning app on my phone to count how many times I touch the mouse in a day. But I'm guessing it's like 30 or 40 times of using the mouse on an Xcode development day versus several hundred times on a FileMaker or WordPress day. Yeah, I think that um, as long as you've got appropriately sized touch targets, mm -hmm. tapping a bunch, I, I agree. I, I think that t tapping a bunch of things on the iPad and scrolling a web page to the right spot and then clicking a button and scrolling around and hitting that and doing a little bit of resizing, all of that stuff the iPad does great. If I need to type a bunch of text, I really need an external keyboard. Mm -hmm. particularly if it's code type text. Yeah, and I have a keyboard on my iPad. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. I, was, I was not doing everything with the on-screen keyboard because that itself would be really annoying because it moves up and then moves your content out of the way. And you, when you're designing mm -hmm. a web page, you need to be able to see the web page. So yeah, I kept the keyboard attached the whole time. So I was really just using the screen for tapping. And that's kind of the part of the secret sauce for this new version of Safari none of the touch targets are appropriately sized for touch. This is the desktop version of the WordPress backend, but Safari is doing something kind of wrapping, I don't know if it's wrapping them in fake larger touch targets or what, but it's making it a lot easier to tap that stuff than it was with iOS 12. Hmm. So there's lots of tiny little buttons that I'm tapping. I've, I've not had any trouble hitting anything. Gotcha. Sometimes that's really helpful. And then sometimes I get that spot where like uh, Twitter does that in their iOS app. They'll make the touch targets a little bigger 
And the problem is that sometimes they're making them too big and they start overlapping. Mm-hmm. And suddenly I can't hit the one that's a small touch target in between two other touch targets. Yeah. Even with a, like, even with a mouse. I'm just like... <clears throat> anyway. Yeah. I haven't seen a way to actually, like, show the element tree from the mobile version of Safari. Like, I'd, love, yeah. I'd like to be able to explode that out and see what Apple has kind of layered on top of that to see yeah. what's happening there. Because there's definitely something. I, and things like, things that require multiple interactions, like tap and, t- like, tap once to disclose a drop-down menu and then tap again to select, they're kind of faking that for you as well. So just tapping once will be, like, the click down and then they'll kind of simulate holding a click down while you scroll the content. So there's definitely some cool stuff happening. I've There's been a couple of times where I really wanted Safari or Chrome's developer tools mm-hmm. in iOS. Yeah. I tend to use Chrome it's, on the desktop for development just because I'm more familiar with the tools. But Yeah. If I just need one piece of information, if I need to dig into the tree or see the link that's hiding behind something, you know, they... They obscured a URL in such a way that I need to be able to get back and look at the JavaScript that's running there or something like that. Mm. Then I need the tools. But for those little ones, I don't care which tools I have. If I'm doing the web development for um, you know FM comparison or something like that, I'm mostly using Chrome's developer tools. Yeah. So I think the worst part about doing WordPress development is helping somebody find a theme that they really like and then resisting the temptation to redo my website with that new theme because it's really awesome. <laughs> I, As you started talking, I thought it was going to be getting them to pick a theme that they really like and then resisting the temptation to modify the theme. No. To add one little feature. No, I, I made a child theme so we can add whatever customizations we need to. <laughs> That's one of the cool things about WordPress themes is you can just basically subclass the entire theme and add whatever functionality you need to without interfering with the the theme you purchased so you can continue receiving updates from it not have to worry about like, are these changes, is this update going to overwrite my changes? You just get around all that. So yeah, this is... This theme that they picked out is, it's driven very heavily by kind of a WYSIWYG page builder tool that I've never worked with before. And I was kind of skeptical at first, but it's so packed with features that it's kind of a no-brainer to use it. And not just with the WYSIWYG tools, but it comes with all of these animations and effects and just ways of doing you know modern things where i don't have to write any of the javascript to do it um i think i've written maybe a thousand lines of code for this project the rest of it has just been using the tools that they picked out so it's you know granted it's a small project we're talking like a home page and maybe a dozen static pages and a blog so Mm -hmm. there's not a lot of code to write but it's been a good little project. So, you know, I've got that kind of buttoned up. There's some stuff to do, but not really any significant work left to do at this point. So I'm diving back into retrospective timelines. And last week we talked about a sorting issue I was having with 
sorting those uh, ongoing records in my list of event dates. So things that have a, a date record, but a nil value in the date field. And after the podcast, you and I talked about some different options. And the one I settled on was basically adding a second field. So just a dirty cheat. Um, I added another field called is ongoing. It's just a Boolean value. It's set to false by default. And whenever I am marking, whenever the user is marking a record as ongoing, it just sets that to true. And then I, when I get my records for the list view, I sort by that Boolean first and then by the dates. So much easier than trying to figure out that arcane syntax of whatever that stuff was that we were looking at the what bnf or something yeah not the, the bnf notation we're trying to figure out how to make it happen in a uh ns mm-hmm. oh god it was the it was the query thing yeah the predicate yeah yes ns predicate yeah so as I was doing that, something else I talked about last week was so one of the things that was on my big table of contents to do this was to refactor the abstract version of the core data data manager or data source into individual versions for timelines and events and dates. And I said I decided not to do that. I was just going to stick with the abstract version. And as I was working on that sorting problem, I realized that the version of that data source file wasn't abstract enough for what I needed. Um, so I ended up going the other way. You know, two days earlier, I was like, I'm going to get rid of all this abstraction and just have you know localized code that I can use for each entity. And I ended up kind of writing out a plan on Tuesday afternoon and didn't actually get to implement it until yesterday because I was busy with the web stuff. But... What I came up with is really cool. And the the problem that I was solving was that, you know, I was using this tool from an open source demo project that I found on GitHub. Actually, I didn't find it. The developer sent me a link to it as a response to a question on Stack Overflow. And I've been using that to kind of learn how to interface core data with Swift UI. And basically he made a a data source class that serves as an intermediary layer between a core data um, backend and like a combined publisher. So the whole thing just has a combined publisher that you can then access from Swift UI. And after working with it for a couple of weeks, I'm starting to get comfortable with it. And I decided to not completely rewrite it, but for the most part, make a new version of it and replace a bunch of functionality with my own needs for it. And the limitation that I was running into was he had basically hard-coded variables for you could have you know, a sort order and a second sort order, a predicate and a second predicate. And you would instantiate instances of this for the, uh, the entity you were using because it was using generics as part of the, the class setup. So you'd say, I need a core data source for a timeline with these sort order um, descriptions. And then if you needed to apply predicates to that, you had to pass in some strings and then pass in data as a separate variable. And then you had some methods to call to 
update the fetch request and then update the fetch result controller with the fetch request. So I decided that a lot of the queries that I'm going to need, like the query screens, are going to need sometimes very complex sorting, more than two sort descriptors, and sometimes very complex predicates. And so I, I kind of ripped out the way that he was passing in the predicates and the sort descriptors, which was all basically just string-based. And I replaced it with a new version of the class that's almost the same. Like I kind of cleaned some stuff up and renamed some stuff, but for the most part, the, the functional difference is there is a private property for an array of NS sort descriptors and a single NS predicate. And this is just kind of weird how core data works totally differently in these two different instances. When you are sorting, adding a sort descriptor to a fetch request, you can pass a single one or you can pass an array. And there's different properties to set with which one you have. And I'm not sure what it looks like under the hood, but they, they account for that. Um, I decided to go ahead and stick with the array one since almost all of my views have more than one field that they're sorting by. There's a couple like the on the dashboard right now, it's only sorting by one field, but that'll probably change. So basically I can just build an array of those wherever I need to and pass them in. And then the predicates one, that's the exact opposite. You can only have one NS predicate for a fetch request, but you can combine them together using compound predicates. So you can make some complicated stuff and then combine them together and then pass them in as a single object. And there's also uh, key paths, but I haven't implemented that yet because I haven't started using it yet. But that's for making more sectioned data, which I'm gonna have to do in some of the reports. So then I made a, a private method that can basically take those properties and apply them to a fetch request. And both of those properties are optional. So I just kind of do some cheap trickery of saying, hey, is this nil? Then don't add it to the fetch request. If it is, if it does have a value, then add it to the fetch request. And I'm already doing the validation to make sure they're valid objects further down the pipeline. And then a public method that basically, from the UI standpoint, I need to pass these predicates in. I call this public method and just pass them as parameters. And then there's some additional checking in there to make sure everything is okay. But the cool part is where I'm building the predicate is happening in the view model layer. So each of these list views where I'm using these fetch result controllers has a view model class that is basically just a kind of a wrapper for the data that's driving the UI. Not necessarily the data from core data, like the user data, but data of like what sort order are we applying? How many records do we have? That type of stuff. So more of metadata. And I've got all that stuff built into a view model for the views. And I made some computed properties in that view model that I can, as I change elements of the user interface, let's say toggling a sort order, that computed property will change what sort order it returns. So it just does a little bit of calculation to you know, do whatever it needs to do with an if statement to return different sort orders and different sort directions, things like that. And then the same thing with the predicates. Um, 
so I can, you know, start building things like have a toggle to or a button that omits all of the uh, date range records and just show me single instances, things like that. And then that is used in the Swift UI view, just like you normally would with state properties or any bound properties. So it's there's one little line of text, and I, I wrote a blog post about this the other day, um, but there is a for each loop where I'm actually passing in, like the result of a function is the basis of the data for the for each loop that's building all of the, the list rows that you see. But I'm calling one method on an observable object. In this case, it's the, uh, the data source. So I'm calling a method on the data source that's an observable object, but I'm passing in two parameters from two other methods on another observable object from the view model. So it's like I'm kind of thoroughly abusing this one design pattern, but it's, it's like, you know, a 200 <laughs> line single string of text. Yeah. <laughs> Part of my brain is going, ah, uh -huh. and the other part of my brain is is uh, just like I love that that point in the project where your low level stuff has gotten so complicated that it makes sense to spend time kind of wrapping it up in its own internal API, mm -hmm. and then you do that, and then everything above that just becomes simpler. Oh yeah, it's just it, it it feels like magic. It's one of those magical moments when you're writing code that. Nobody else really ever gets to see, mm -hmm. but it's just a lot of fun. Yeah, it's to the point now where the views, the actual Swift UI views that I'm writing, are getting to the point where they're not doing anything logically anymore. They're just parsing out variables. So I outstanding. So, yeah, so this is exactly what I needed. There's one view I was working on this morning where I still I still need to get the conditional stuff out of the view into the view model because there's like there's some weird areas where like showing and hiding the favorite button the little favorite star on a list view right now i just have an if statement on the view to say hey is this property set to true then show this else show some or don't show anything but i and could rewrite that where i'm just returning a view and that view that i'm returning is either an empty view or the star so yeah need to work on stuff like that I'm definitely getting to the point where I'm understanding this type of development and having that little view model design pattern. Having learned that from that Udemy course I did a couple months ago, that's been probably the most valuable piece of information for this type of work. Like I still don't really understand all of the uh, declarative versus imperative stuff and I'll probably get it over time, but I don't really care to spend too much time on the theory. I really just wanna make stuff. So yeah, there's a ton of work on that. I had kind of, when I'd written up that document for how I was going to design the data source, I did that on Tuesday and it felt like that was going to be days or a week or more worth of work to do, but it really just took yesterday to do. And it took about five hours and it was that kind of development where I usually work for a couple hours and take a break and work for a couple hours, but I just did all of it at once. So just five hours of continuously working on this problem. And I only spent five hours on it because I lost track of time. So I was just like, it's, after I got about an hour into it, I realized like this is a problem that I can actually solve today if I stay on it and don't let anything distract me. So just kind of stayed with it until I got it done. And then 
you know, by 10 o'clock in the morning. I'm like, well, I guess I'm done working for the day. <laughs> so, yeah, like I mentioned, I, I wrote some blog posts about that. And I also wrote a short post today about the user interface. Because um, now that I've got this foundation, so, you know, I spent last week or two weeks ago working on the schema and then this past week working on this data source class, I have a pretty solid foundation at this point to really start building the rest of the UI, including some of the custom query views and report views and things like that. Um, so I need to go back and finish up that event list view and things like that. Just, I don't know, everything right now looks fine, but it needs something, especially the event list. The event list and the event detail, they just look like very stock, boring kind of layouts where the timeline stuff looks pretty nice. But so yeah, that's going to be this week is really diving back into design and user interface stuff and start working on it. articles of flair. Yeah, that's when you uh, you raise the level of the app in one particular view and you're like, crap, mm -hmm. I got to go make everything else this good. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of, it's it's a little jarring. There's some screenshots in that blog post of like two side-by-side -side screenshots of what the timeline stuff looks like and then three side-by-side -side screenshots of what the event stuff looks like. And there's there's a really big difference between those two interfaces. <laughs> so, yeah, that's, that's going to be my focus this week. Um, before I pass it on to you, I wanted to give a quick update of the 100 days of Swift UI thing I've been doing. So that started a couple weeks ago and the first 15 days were kind of boring because it was just like a refresher of Swift. And there's some stuff I, I picked up and learned about that, but it was still very abstract. It was, you know, just here are closures and we're going to talk about closures for two days. But I find that type of stuff not incredibly helpful unless I'm actually working with closures and solving a problem. So we finally got to the point of starting SwiftUI development on day 16 last week. And so far I've made four little apps. One of them is just a joke. Uh, but the first day we did a kind of a, a check splitting app where you can enter a dollar amount, select a number of people, add some optional gratuity and get an amount. And then there was a challenge after that app to kind of take what you learned in those lessons and make some kind of unit conversion app. So I, you know, since I'm working with dates so much in the timeline project, I decided to make a simple app called time past where you just enter a start date and an end date and it returns different strings of, you know, the, dur the duration between the start date and end date, how many years that was, how many months that was, how many, days that was and just things like that and then uh this weekend was a little game so we made a, a kind of a, a flag guessing game where you've got three options you got to pick the right right one but as a, during that lesson um he mentioned different ways of doing gradients in swift ui and one of them was angular gradients where you can pass in a couple of colors and make a gradient around the circle. So I immediately had to make the beach ball of death as an app. So now I have in my pocket, whenever I need just an app that's called, please wait. 
and it's just a really big beach ball of death <laughs> that I can hold up whenever I'm thinking about something. <laughs> so yeah, I've been uh, kind of sticking with that that project and uh, plan on sticking with it through the end of the year. The only time I skip it, like I skip it on Saturdays and just double up on Sunday because I just don't like to write code on Saturday or use a computer at all. But yeah. Swift UI, 100 days of Swift UI. Check it out if you're interested. Very cool. So what have you been working on? Oh, well, you remember last week when we were talking about the uh, the not operator mm-hmm. and how it was different from all the other operators because it was kind of a prefix operator and that it could just kind of go before something and it could be not so much combined with, but appear next to other operators. So I could say A plus not B. Mm-hmm. And that's completely valid. Well, as my brain was percolating on this, I figured out another prefix operator. And that's the negative operator. So what I can do is I can say A plus negative B. Mm, that's right. But the thing is, that's already an operator in another context. Like, not doesn't function anyplace else. So I don't have to worry about it. If you negative a Boolean value, what happens? I don't know. <laughs> but file- it's a valid construct. Yeah, but FileMaker knows. <laughs> I think it will still... Basic- I, I don't know what happens if you negative a false... Negativing a true will definitely get you a negative one, which would qualify as false. Hmm. Right? I think. I don't know. I think it's zero or anything else. So, um, the negative basically functions as an arithmetic not rather than a logical not. Like, not is um and so i i already had kind of a model like i know what the parser code looks like for the not so i just popped in some parser code that did the same thing with minus and all these little red dots started popping up on my unit tests (laughs) not just on the new unit test that i'd written for this stuff but in old ones for things like basic subtraction Mm. um So it's kind of a good news, bad news. Yay, unit tests. Boo, everything's broken. But I know exactly where it's broken. I know how it's broken. Now I just got to figure out how to make the code right. So had to dig in there and and restructure some of the, the antler code to make it act properly. Because I can't just say minus can be for the minus symbol can be for subtraction or making negatives. Like I can't kind of point it there. I can do it a little hierarchically and say, well, here's this negative symbol. And sometimes it's used as an operator. That's valid, but that's where everything was breaking. And so I kind of had to track it in, in two paths and go, here's this negative operator. It can be used in places where operators are used it's weird i haven't come up with a good way to just i mean it's hard to even describe the problem much less what the solution looks like yeah but 
rejiggered some things, moved some stuff around, and that's all working. And it was wonderful to just be able to press the one button and go, yep, now everything's working again. Add three more unit tests. Nope, still all working. So that was fantastic. Um, and then I was looking at kind of playing more with the parser, but one of the things that was starting to stress me out was I built all this stuff that broke down the calculations in all their constituent parts or almost all of their constituent parts. And I was getting very nervous about the fact that I still didn't exactly know how I was going to put it all back together. <laughs> it isn't enough to just pull out all the field names. I need to be able to kind of edit those field names and then make sure that the two calculations match. And so I had to look at how I was going to put all that back together. And so I kind of set aside the parser momentarily and starting working on the piece that will assemble my final kind of output XML that has the appropriate elements tagged. Um, so there's a couple options there. I mean, one is I can kind of build the, the super version of this because I've broken all these pieces out. So I know that like these are variables and these are field names and these are table references and I can tag all of that stuff. But in the end for this project, I don't actually care about the variables beyond knowing that they're variables and not tagging them as fields. Mm -hmm. Like if you rename a variable in the calculation, that's a valid change. It's not one of those changes that FileMaker will propagate for you. So just being able to say, these are the parts that I care about and these are the parts that I don't. So I said, I'm not going to worry about kind of the, the FM perception version of this parser. Yeah. The FM perception version of the parser will want to tag almost everything. Um, I have a hard time figuring out things that I'm not going to care about <laughs> at some point. I can't relate to that. <laughs> yeah, it's it's just you're looking at it going, well, am I going to care that they use the addition operator? No, never. Well, I mean, there is that one case, maybe in that certain situation, I might want to be able to go through and find out where the addition operators are happening. Yeah. One I of the things that I was looking at playing with was seeing if I could figure out what the final output type for a calculation is. Does this calculation produce a, a date? Hmm. Or does this calculation produce a string? There are some things that will make that tough. Yeah. You know, I, I add two uh, variables together. What's the output type of that? No idea. Indeterminate? Yeah. Or is it uh, number or date or time or timestamp? I mean, that, that's a maybe. Um, but yeah, so those operators could matter at some point if I try doing that. But that's 
irrelevant to the problem at hand and I want to get back into the diff engine. Like This was not supposed to take this long. Oh my god. Yeah, it's been about three months of uh, Antler. Has it? I think so. I think he started it right, right after WWDC in early August. Joe, this is this is one of those spots where me having a poor sense of time should not be corrected by you. Because A, the three months are gone. There's nothing I can do about that at this point. All that does is make me sad. Um so anyway. Uh Okay, it's two months. <laughs> I see the first episode tag with Antler on August nineteenth. Goody. Mm-hmm. Let's let's just set that aside. Um, so yeah, sort of going in and tagging or kind of building a, a scaffolding that I can use to produce the output XML. And what I've got now should be relatively expandable for handling the more complex cases later. And it's doing some fun stuff with tagging. You know, when I've got those complete uh, field references that include a table occurrence name, Mm -hmm. you know, table occurrence name, colon, colon, field name. I'm building a different tag structure than in a spot where I've just got something else that I am pretty sure is a field name or something that I'm pretty sure is a like a custom function name. So that needs to be expanded, but my concerns about that are now largely alleviated. It's a little funky in the way that the tree is built. So when Antler produces its parsed version of a calculation, it generates what's called an abstract syntax tree. And so it's kind of a little branching thing that kind of breaks down each of the components. But some of these components are children of larger assemblies. You know, the a variable might be dollar sign, dollar sign, my var name. But in the parser, it's actually two pieces. It's dollar sign, dollar sign, and then a FileMaker valid identifier. (laughs) And so if I, depending upon how I want to tag it, I can grab those individual bits. But more, if I want to say, for the purposes of this, for this variable, I want to tag both the dollar sign, dollar sign, and the myvar name. Wrap the tag around both of those. There are other situations where I want to tag the identifiers. So I've got code that says, oh, but you find an identifier, let's tag that. Well, that'll end up going inside the other one because it'll call both. Basically, as it's crawling through the syntax tree, every node gets looked at. And so it looks at the parent node, and then it looks at both of those children nodes. And if any of those have code that's tied to output, it will do the output again. So, yeah, there's also situations where I'm, I can kind of 
track it as entering and exiting a node. So when I enter the node, I can output a little bit of XML. When I exit the node, I can like put out a close tag mm -hmm. or something like that. But in some of these cases, when I hit the particular node, I want to output the entire thing. So juggling that is a little funky and I've got to spend more time with it, but my confidence is higher. Yeah. Just think of how easy it's going to be to write the XML parsing code for all of this. If you were to do that like one-handed laying on the Oh couch. yeah. Yeah. Handling, the, like once I've got everything parsed and properly tagged, doing the comparison is not that complicated. I have an um, idea though. Yeah, I think you is, should... it, is it a bad idea? Possibly. Okay. Um, I like I, bad ideas. I think you should make a tabletop version of this parsing problem as a game where you just assemble FileMaker valid FileMaker calculations with these little blocks. So you have to combine them with, you know, like the the different objects that you talked about, the, like the. Mm -hmm. Uh, valid identifier you've got you've got 50 of those that you can start with and you've got some double dollar signs and some single dollar signs and operators but you're not really maybe you're not sure what is what and you've got to combine these together to solve problems i think it could be the uh the first board game to sell at devcon <laughs> i did see somebody once a number of years ago who was selling a children's game that was written in FileMaker. Nice. It even had animation using little container field things for the graphics. I think they were mostly just doing it because they could. Yeah. Um, and it was kind of fun. It was definitely not a project management system. No. But uh, I spent about an hour sitting down with the developer of that and just kind of looking at all of his code and Mm -hmm. and the the weird ways they were tackling that um but i think just going through the prototyping phase of that game idea with all of these different parsing object types on index cards and sliding them around the table could help you figure out any edge cases that you're missing now yeah the problem there at this point is if you remember from a previous conversation, I decided that one of the things that I was punting on at this stage, because I don't need it yet, is the ability to validate a calculation. Mm -hmm. um, because you can't write a calculation in this software. So in FM comparison, all I'm going to be getting from the user are valid calculations that FileMaker has already validated. Um, but in the one that you're talking about, the user would theoretically be able to say A plus plus B. Mm -hmm. And that's not a valid FileMaker construct. But if I don't write a bunch of extra code and dial down the parser tighter, I can't tell them this is a bad calculation. Not necessarily letting them write calculations, but letting them say rename a field name in your software that renames it in the, all the calculations that it's referenced in. That type of thing. So it's not necessarily giving them a free form text field and re-implementing that 
calculation dialog. But being able to handle those, I don't, I don't know if this is on the roadmap or a totally different tool or what. But you mentioned to me a couple of years ago the idea of as FileMaker opens up their XML schema, it becomes possible for third-party tools to allow creation and editing of FileMaker elements that you can then import back into FileMaker. Right. And so when I start working with that, then I definitely need that extra code. No, I think you should do all of it now. <laughs> why, why get something done when you can work on a really hard problem indefinitely? <laughs> yeah, and that XML is just in beta right now. Like if I give them another two years, it'll be way more dialed in when I get back to doing the diff thing and all of my customers are ready to shoot me. That's the best time to start working with software. It's in super early beta. <laughs> Oh, I'm going to write a, write a book. I'm going to write a book about this. <laughs> if you write that just right, you can have everybody wondering if you're being serious or being sarcastic. Yeah. And if you'll have succeeded, I think, if no one can tell for sure. If there's a strong argument to be made either way. Hmm. Um, I was considering writing a really small app that basically just had the parser in it. Mm. So just a, you know, two little side-by-side -side text regions. So you could type in a calculation on the left-hand side or paste in a calculation, and then it would parse it and break it down and show it to you in kind of a graphical, here's, here's where the functional bits are mm. yeah. thing on the side. Because it'll be easier for me to ask people to break it. If I could say, hey, if you want to help with this, just download this app and you can feed it anything. Particularly if you can, if the users can use that as a way to kind of decipher those crazy spaghetti code calculations that we all inherit. Like, I don't even want to reason about this. Tell me what this is doing. Like, what are the logical parts of this? Ooh. See, I, I was just thinking of it for my purposes. Mm -hmm. But wow, having a thing that like takes the code in whatever format it was in with whatever kind of white space and breaks down functionally how it looks and works. Huh. Let me record the date in your new project. That's really neat sounding. I do have to, that does require the more complex output, though not necessarily the validation. I'm thinking kind of like something, like when you take a, you know, a bit of code and pretty print it, or like just fix all the formatting, uh -huh. and put this in a certain way, something kind of like that for FileMaker calculations, but yeah. maybe with a little bit of extra functionality that's, not just parsing it and making it look nice, but you know, being able to maybe mouse over something or click on something and say, "Oh, this is this line is doing this." Uh -huh. We think this line is doing this, or like code collapsing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, having the ability to to go, okay, I don't care about this case statement; just collapse it. I I've figured out what it does, 
obscure it from me and just show me like the case and then the opening close parenthesis. Mm-hmm. And then I can look at what the structure of everything else looks like. It's a really neat sounding thing. Huh. So it should be out by next week. I can't figure out if I'm inspired or whether now I hate you. <laughs> um, Probably a little bit of both. I, I think it's actually a lot of both. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of both of them in there joe i'm 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 really intrigued by this concept and that actually increases my dissatisfaction with you <laughs> how very very displeased i am with you right now joe <laughs> <laughs>